Section 9 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Mike Manalakis. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7, by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Battles of Slois and Crecy a d thirteen forty 1340 to thirteen forty six by sir john froissart the sea fight of slois began the hundred years war between england and france it is also memorable as england's first great naval victory the origin of the war lay in the salic law which excludes women from the throne of france this overruled the claims of queen isabella of england and her son edward the third in thirteen twenty eight when the twelve peers and barons of France unanimously gave the crown to Isabella's cousin, Philip of Valois, who ascended the throne as Philip VI of France. Edward III ingeniously maintained that, though the Salic law prevented his mother from filling the throne, it did not destroy the rights of her male descendants, and he early entertained the project of enforcing this contention but it was not until 1337 that he felt able to assert formally his claim to the French crown and to assume the title of King of France. The following year, with a considerable body of troops to support his presumed rights, he crossed to the continent and passed the winter at Antwerp among the Flemings who had taken up his cause, and with whom, as well as with the Emperor King of Germany, he effected aggressive alliances. He made a formal declaration of war in 1339, beginning hostilities which were prolonged into the Hundred Years' War, and which, as a contest of the English kings for the sovereignty of France, produced a series of important revolutions in the fortunes of that country. The first serious action of the war was a naval battle at Slois, near the Belgian frontier just northeast of Bruges, June 23, 1340. King Edward and his entire navy sailed from the Thames, June 22nd, and made straight for Slois. Sir Hugh Quiriel and other French officers with over 120 large vessels were lying near Slois for the purpose of disputing the English king's passage. Froissart, with his usual terseness, has graphically recorded the combat which ensued. A more important victory was that won in the land battle at Crecy in 1346, which, however, simply paved the way to the capture of Calais, for it was not until the Battle of Poitiers, ten years later, that Edward made any progress toward the conquest of France. In 1346, after landing with a force of troops at Cape La Hogue, Edward reduced Cherbourg, Caraton, and Caen, and with the intention of crossing the Seine at Rouen, commenced his march on Calais, where he was to be joined by his Flemish allies. Philip, making a rapid march from Paris to Amiens, had posted detachments of soldiers along the right bank of the River Somme, guarding every ford, breaking down every bridge, and gradually shutting up the invaders in the narrow space between the Somme and the sea. Edward sent out his marshals with their battalions to find a passage, but they were unsuccessful, until a peasant led them to the tidal ford of Blanchetoc. Although desperately opposed by fully 12,000 French under the Norman baron Sir Godemar du Fay, they effected a crossing and marching on encamped in the fields near Crecy. The king of France, with the main body of his troops, 
had taken up his quarters in Abbeville. Battle of Sloys When the king's fleet was almost got to Sloys, they saw so many masts standing before it that they looked like a wood. The king asked the commander of his ship what they could be, who answered that he imagined they must be that armament of Normans which the king of France kept at sea and which had so frequently done him much damage, had burned his good town of Southampton, and taken his large ship the Christopher. The king replied, I have for a long time wished to meet with them, and now, please God and St. George, we will fight them, for in truth they have done me so much mischief that I will be revenged on them if it be possible. The king drew up all his vessels, placing the strongest in the front, and on the wings his archers. Between every two vessels with archers there was one of men-at-arms. He stationed some detached vessels as a reserve, full of archers, to assist and help such as might be damaged. There were in this fleet a great many ladies from England, countesses, baronesses, and knights and gentlemen's wives, who were going to attend on the queen at Ghent. These the king had guarded most carefully by three hundred men-at-arms and five hundred archers. When the king of England and his marshals had properly divided the fleet, they hoisted their sails to have the wind on their quarter, as the sun shone full in their faces, which they considered might be of disadvantage to them, and stretched out a little so that at last they got the wind as they wished. The Normans, who saw them tack, could not help wondering why they did so, and said they took great care to turn about, for they were afraid of meddling with them. They perceived, however, by his banner, that the king was on board, which gave them great joy, as they were eager to fight with him. So they put their vessels in proper order, for they were expert and gallant men on the seas. They filled the Christopher, the large ship which they had taken the year before from the English, with trumpets and other warlike instruments, and ordered her to fall upon the English. The battle then began very fiercely. Archers and crossbowmen shot with all their might at each other, and the men-at-arms engaged hand-to-hand. In order to be more successful, they had large grapnels and iron hooks with chains, which they flung from ship to ship to moor them to each other. There were many valiant deeds performed, many prisoners made, and many rescues. The Christopher, which led the van, was recaptured by the English, and all in her taken or killed. There were then great shouts and cries, and the English manned her again with archers, and sent her to fight against the Genoese. This battle was very murderous and horrible. Combats at sea are more destructive and obstinate than upon the land, for it is not possible to retreat or flee. Everyone must abide his fortune and exert his prowess and valor. Sir Hugh Quiriel and his companions were bold and determined men, had done much mischief to the English at sea, and destroyed many of their ships. This combat, therefore, lasted from early in the morning until noon, and the English were hard-pressed, for their enemies were four to one, and the greater part men who had been used to the sea. The king, who was in the flower of his youth, showed himself on that day a gallant knight, as did the earls of Derby, Pembroke, Hereford, Huntington, Northampton, and Gloucester, the Lord Reginald Cobham, Lord Fenton, Lord Braidston, Sir Richard Stafford, the Lord Percy, Sir Walter Manny, Sir Henry de Flanders, Sir John Beecham, Sir John Chandros, the Lord Delaware, Lucy Lord Malton, and the Lord Robert d'Artois, now called Earl of Richmond. 
I cannot remember all the names of those who behaved so valiantly in the combat, but they did so well that, with some assistance from Bruges and those parts of the country, the French were completely defeated and all the Normans and the others killed or drowned, so that not one of them escaped. This was soon known all over Flanders, and when it came to the two armies before Tinlevec, the Hainalters were as much rejoiced as their enemies were dismayed. After the king had gained this victory, which was on the eve of St. John's Day, he remained all that night on board of a ship before Sloys, and there were great noises with trumpets and all kinds of other instruments. The Flemings came to wait on him, having heard of his arrival and what deeds he had performed. The king inquired of the citizens of Bruges after Jacob van Artvelt, and they told him he was gone to the aid of the Earl of Hainault with upward of 60,000 men against the Duke of Normandy. On the morrow, which was Midsummer Day, the king and his fleet entered the port. As soon as they were landed, the king, attended by crowds of knights, set out on foot on a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Ardenburg, where he heard mass and dined. He then mounted his horse and went that day to Kent, where the queen was, who received him with great joy and kindness. The army and baggage, with the attendance of the king, followed him by degrees to the same place. Battle of Crecy. The two battalions of the marshals came on Friday in the afternoon to where the king was, and they fixed their quarters, all three together, near Crecy in Ponthieu. The king of England, who had been informed that the king of France was following him in order to give him battle, said to his people, Let us post ourselves here, for we will not go farther before we have seen our enemies. I have good reason to wait for them upon this spot as I am now upon the lawful inheritance of my lady mother, which was given her as the marriage portion, and I am resolved to defend it against my adversary, Philip de Valois. On account of his not having more than an eighth part of the forces which the king of France had, his marshals fixed upon the most advantageous situation, and the army went and took possession of it. He then sent his scouts toward Abbeville to learn if the king of France meant to take the field this Friday, but they returned and said they saw no appearance of it, upon which he dismissed his men to the quarters with orders to be in readiness by times in the morning and to assemble in the same place. The king of France remained all day in Abbeville, waiting for more troops. He sent his marshals, the Lord of St. Venant and Lord Charles of Montmorency, out of Abbeville, to examine the country and get some certain intelligence of the English. They returned about Vespers with information that the English were encamped on the plain. That night, the King of France entertained at supper in Abbeville all the princes and chief lords. There was much conversation relative to war, and the king entreated them after supper that they would always remain in friendship with each other, that they would be friends without jealousy and courteous without pride. The king was still expecting the Earl of Savoy, who ought to have been there with a thousand lances, as he had been well paid for them at Troyes in Champagne, three months in advance. The King of England encamped this Friday in the plain, for he found the country abounding in provisions, but if they should have failed, he had plenty in the carriages which attended on him. The army set about furbishing and repairing their armor, and the king gave a supper that evening to the earls and barons of his army, where they made good cheer. On their taking leave, the king remained alone with the lords of his bedchamber, he retired into his oratory, and falling on his knees before the altar, prayed to God that if he should combat his enemies on the morrow, he might come off with honor. About midnight he went to bed, and rising early the next day, 
he and the prince of wales heard mass and communicated the greater part of his army did the same confessed and made proper preparations after mass the king ordered his men to arm themselves and assemble on the ground he had before fixed on he had enclosed a large park near a wood on the rear of his army in which he placed all his baggage wagons and horses this park had but one entrance his men-at-arms and archers remained on foot the king afterward ordered through his constable and his two marshals that the army should be divided into three battalions in the first he placed the young prince of wales and with him the earls of warwick and oxford sir godfrey de harcourt the lord reginald cobham lord thomas holland lord stafford lord mauley the lord delaware sir john chandos lord bartholomew burgess lord robert neville lord thomas clifford lord borchier lord latimer and many other knights and squires there might be in this first division about eight hundred men-at-arms two thousand archers and a thousand welshmen they advanced in regular order to their ground each lord under his banner and pennon and in the centre of his men in the second battalion were the earl of northampton the earl of arundel the lords roos willoughby bassett st albans sir lewis tufton lord moulton lord laskells and many others amounting in the whole to about eight hundred men-at-arms and twelve hundred archers the third battalion was commanded by the king and was composed of about seven hundred men-at-arms and two thousand archers the king then mounted a small palfrey having a white wand in his hand and attended by his two marshals on each side of him he rode at a footpace through all the ranks encouraging and entreating the army that they would guard his honor and defend his right he spoke this so sweetly and with such a cheerful countenance that all who had been dispirited were directly comforted by seeing and hearing him when he had thus visited all the battalions it was near ten o'clock he retired to his own division and ordered them all to eat heartily and drink a glass after they ate and drank at their ease and having packed up pots barrels etc in the carts they returned to their battalions according to the marshal's orders and seated themselves on the ground placing their helmets and bows before them that they might be the fresher when their enemies should arrive on saturday the king of france rose betimes and heard mass in the monastery of st peter's in abbeville where he was lodged having ordered his army to do the same he left that town after sunrise when he had marched about two leagues from abbeville and was approaching the enemy he was advised to form his army in order of battle and to let those on foot march forward that they might not be trampled on by the horses the king upon this sent off four knights lord moyne of basselburg lord of noyers lord of beaujeu and the lord of aubigny who rode so near to the english that they could clearly distinguish their position the english plainly perceived that they were come to reconnoitre them however they took no notice of it but suffered them to return unmolested when the king of france saw them coming back he halted his army and the knights pushing through the crowd came near the king who said to them my lords what news they looked at each other without opening their mouths for neither chose to speak first at last the king addressed himself to the lord moyne who was attached to the king of bohemia and had performed very many gallant deeds so that he was esteemed one of the most valiant knights in christendom lord moyne said sir i will speak since it pleases you to order me but under the correction of my companions we have advanced far enough to reconnoitre your enemies 
know then that they are drawn up in three battalions and are waiting for you i would advise for my part submitting however to better counsel that you halt your army here and quarter them for the night for before the rear shall come up and the army be properly drawn out it will be very late your men will be tired and in disorder while they will find your enemies fresh and properly arrayed on the morrow you may draw up your army more at your ease and may reconnoitre at leisure on what part it will be most advantageous to begin the attack for be assured they will wait for you the king commanded that it should be so done and the two marshals rode one toward the front and the other to the rear crying out halt banners in the name of god and saint denis those that were in front halted but those behind said they would not halt until they were as forward as the front when the front perceived the rear pressing on they pushed forward and neither the king nor the marshals could stop them but they marched without any order until they came in sight of their enemies as soon as the foremost ranks saw them they fell back at once in great disorder which alarmed those in the rear who thought they had been fighting there was then space and room enough for them to have passed forward had they been willing to do so some did so but others remained shy all the roads between abbeville and Crecy were covered with common people who when they were come within three leagues of their enemies drew their swords bawling out kill kill and with them were many great lords that were eager to make show of their courage there is no man unless he had been present that can imagine or describe truly the confusion of that day especially the bad management and disorder of the french whose troops were out of number the english were drawn up in three divisions and seated on the ground on seeing their enemies advance they rose up and fell into their ranks that of the prince was the first to do so whose archers were formed in the manner of a portcullis or harrow and the men-at-arms in the rear the earls of northampton and arundel who commanded the second division had posted themselves in good order on his wing to assist and succor the prince if necessary you must know that these kings earls barons and lords of france did not advance in any regular order but one after the other or any way most pleasing to themselves as soon as the king of france came in sight of the english his blood began to boil and he cried out to his marshals order the Genoese forward and begin the battle in the name of god and saint denis there were about fifteen thousand genoese crossbowmen but they were quite fatigued having marched on foot that day six leagues completely armed and with their crossbows they told the constable they were not in a fit condition to do any great things that day in battle the earl of alencon hearing this said this is what one gets by employing such scoundrels who fall off when there is any need for them during this time a heavy rain fell accompanied by thunder and a very terrible eclipse of the sun and before this rain a great flight of crows hovered in the air over all those battalions making a loud noise shortly afterward it cleared up and the sun shone very bright but the frenchmen had it on their faces and the english on their backs when the genoese were somewhat in order and approached the english they set up a loud shout in order to frighten them but they remained quite still and did not seem to attend to it then they set up a second shout and advanced a little forward but the english never moved they hooted a third time advancing with their crossbows presented and began to shoot the english archers then advanced one step forward and shot their arrows with such force and quickness that it seemed as if it snowed when the genoese felt these arrows which pierced their arms heads and through their armor some of them cut the strings of their crossbows 
others flung them to the ground and all turned about and retreated quite discomfited the french had a large body of men-at-arms on horseback richly dressed to support the genoese the king of france seeing them thus fall back cried out kill me those scoundrels for they stop up our road without any reason you would then have seen the above-mentioned men-at-arms lay about them killing all they could of these runaways the english continued shooting as vigorously and quickly as before some of their arrows fell among the horsemen who were sumptuously equipped and killing and wounding many made them caper and fall among the genoese so that they were in such confusion that they could never rally again in the english army there were some cornish and welshmen on foot who would arm themselves with large knives these advancing through the ranks of the men-at-arms and archers who made way for them came upon the french when they were in this danger and falling upon earls barons knights and squires slew many at which the king of england was afterward much exasperated the valiant king of bohemia was slain there he was called charles of luxembourg for he was the son of the gallant king and emperor henry of luxembourg having heard the order of the battle he inquired where his son lord charles was his attendants answered that they did not know but believed he was fighting the king said to them gentlemen you are all my people my friends and brethren at arms this day therefore as i am blind i request of you to lead me so far into the engagement that i may strike one stroke with my sword the knights replied that they would directly lead him forward and in order that they might not lose him in the crowd they fastened all the reins of their horses together and put the king at their head so that he might gratify his wish and advance toward the enemy lord charles of bohemia who already signed his name as king of germany and bore the arms had come in good order to the engagement but when he perceived that it was likely to turn out against the french he departed the king his father had rode in among the enemy and made good use of his sword for he and his companions had fought most gallantly they had advanced so far that they were all slain and on the morrow they were found on the ground with their horses all tied together the earl of alencon advanced in regular order upon the english to fight with them as did the earl of flanders in another part these two lords with their detachments coasting as it were the archers came to the prince's battalion where they fought valiantly for a length of time the king of france was eager to march to the place where he saw their banners displayed but there was a hedge of archers before him he had that day made a present of a handsome black horse to sir john of hainault who had mounted on it a knight called sir john de fuselis that bore his banner the horse ran off with him and forced its way through the english army and when about to return stumbled and fell into a ditch and severely wounded him he would have been dead if his page had not followed him round the battalions and found him unable to rise he had not however any other hindrance than from his horse for the english did not quit the ranks that day to make prisoners the page alighted and raised him up but he did not return the way he came as he would have found it difficult from the crowd this battle which was fought on the saturday between Labroyes and Crecy was very murderous and cruel, and many gallant deeds of arms were performed that were never known. Toward evening, many knights and squires of the French had lost their masters. They wandered up and down the plain, attacking the English in small parties. They were soon destroyed, for the English had determined that day to give no quarter nor hear of ransom from anyone. 
early in the day some french german and savoyards had broken through the archers of the prince's battalion and had engaged with the men-at-arms upon which the second battalion came to his aid otherwise he would have been hard pressed the first division seeing the danger they were in sent a knight in great haste to the king of england who was posted upon an eminence near a windmill on the knight's arrival he said sir the earl of warwick lord reginald cobham and the others who are about your son are vigorously attacked by the french they entreat that you would come to their assistance with your battalion for if their numbers should increase they fear he will have too much to do the king replied is my son dead unhorsed or so badly wounded that he cannot support himself nothing of the sort thank god rejoined the knight but he is in so hot an engagement that he has great need of your help the king answered now sir thomas return back to those that sent you and tell them from me not to send again for me this day or expect that i shall come let what will happen as long as my son has life and say that i command them to let the boy win his spurs for i am determined if it please god that all the glory and honor of this day shall be given to him and to those into whose care i have entrusted him the knight returned to his lords and related the king's answer which mightily encouraged them and made them repent they had ever sent such a message it is a certain fact that sir godfrey de harcourt who was in the prince's battalion having been told by some of the english that they had seen the banner of his brother engaged in the battle against him was exceedingly anxious to save him but he was too late for he was left dead on the field and so was the earl of omarl his nephew on the other hand the earls of alencon and of flanders were fighting lustily under their banners and with their own people but they could not resist the force of the english and were slain as well as many other knights and squires that were attending on or accompanying them the earl of blois nephew to the king of france and the duke of lorraine his brother-in-law with their troops made a gallant defence but they were surrounded by a troop of english and welsh and slain in spite of their prowess the earl of st paul and the earl of auxerre were also killed as well as many others late after vespers the king of france had not more about him than sixty men every one included sir john of hanault who was of the number had once remounted the king for his horse had been killed under him by an arrow he said to the king sir retreat while you have an opportunity and do not expose yourself so simply if you have lost this battle another time you will be the conqueror after he had said this he took the bridle of the king's horse and led him off by force for he had before entreated him to retire the king rode on until he came to the castle of labroius where he found the gate shut for it was very dark the king ordered the governor of it to be summoned he came upon the battlements and asked who it was that called at such an hour the king answered open open governor it is the fortune of france the governor hearing the king's voice immediately descended opened the gate and let down the bridge the king and his company entered the castle but he had only with him five barons sir john of hainault lord charles of montmorency lord beaujou lord albany and lord montfort the king would not bury himself in such a place as that but having taken some refreshments set out again with his attendants about midnight and rode on under the direction of guides who were well acquainted with the country until about daybreak when he came to amiens where he halted 
the english never quitted their ranks in pursuit of anyone but remained on the field guarding their position and defending themselves against all who attacked them the battle was ended at the hour of vespers when on saturday night the english heard no more hooting or shouting nor any more crying out to particular lords or their banners they looked upon the field as their own and their enemies as beaten they made great fires and lighted torches because of the obscurity of the night king edward then came down from his post who all that day had not put on his helmet and with his whole battalion advanced to the prince of wales whom he embraced in his arms and kissed and said sweet son god give you good perseverance you are my son for most loyally have you acquitted yourself this day you are worthy to be a sovereign the prince bowed down very low and humbled himself giving all the honor to the king his father the english during the night made frequent thanksgivings to the lord for the happy issue of the day and without rioting for the king had forbidden all riot or noise on sunday morning there was so great a fog that one could scarcely see the distance of half an acre the king ordered a detachment from the army under the command of the two marshals consisting of about five hundred lances and two thousand archers to make an excursion and see if there were any bodies of french troops collected together the quota of troops from rouen and beauvais had that morning left abbeville and saint riquier in ponteau to join the french army and were ignorant of the defeat of the preceding evening they met this detachment and thinking they must be french hastened to join them as soon as the english found who they were they fell upon them and there was a sharp engagement the french soon turned their backs and fled in great disorder there were slain in this flight in the open fields under hedges and bushes upward of seven thousand and had it been clear weather not one soul would have escaped a little time afterward this same party fell in with the archbishop of rouen and the great prior of france who were also ignorant of the discomfiture of the french for they had been informed that the king was not to fight before sunday here began a fresh battle for those two lords were well attended by good men-at-arms however they could not withstand the english but were almost all slain with the two chiefs who commanded them very few escaping in the morning the english found many frenchmen who had lost their road on saturday and had lain in the open fields not knowing what was become of the king or their own leaders the english put to the sword all they met and it has been assured to me for fact that of foot soldiers sent from the cities towns and municipalities there were slain this sunday morning four times as many as in the battle of saturday this detachment which had been sent to look after the french returned as the king was coming from mass and related to him all that they had seen and met with after he had been assured by them that there was not any likelihood of the french collecting another army he sent to have the number and condition of the dead examined he ordered on this business lord reginald cobham lord stafford and three heralds to examine their arms and two secretaries to write down all the names they took much pains to examine all the dead and were the whole day in the field of battle not returning but just as the king was sitting down to supper they made him a very circumstantial report of all they had observed and said that they had found eighty banners the bodies of eleven princes twelve hundred knights and about thirty thousand common men End of section nine